We're continuing in our series, uh, this Reclaim series, how God calls John to reclaim certain aspects that these seven churches that he was writing to were losing out on, were forgetting about, were in the danger of in those particular areas where the weakness of their faith was vulnerable to whatever Satan wanted to do to distract them and to have a spiritual life, a relationship with Jesus Christ that was not powerful. A relationship with Jesus Christ that was simply religious in nature. Uh, a relationship with Jesus Christ that was devoid of purpose and transformation. And so each week as we're going through the message to the seven churches, today we're going to be focusing on the church of Pergamum. See, after the revelation that Jesus gave to John, and it was a revelation that was a long time coming. He kept going over, to, uh, going over to prayer on the Lord's day, trying to seek God for four years as he was in isolation and exile from all the other churches, from every other follower of Jesus Christ. John finally has this revelation that comes from God that changes everything. And what John can't help to do at that moment, once that revelation comes, he says, I need to share this. Jesus says, I want you to share this with the other churches. I remember a long time ago, this was really long ago, when I was 15 years old, and I was attending church. I was attending church because my parents just brought me to church, and that was just the thing that we did. I saw no relevance in why we had to sing why we had to listen to a boring sermon, why we had to go through all of these kind of rituals on Sunday when I could be doing other stuff. And, and for me, sometimes it felt so bad singing through songs. Like, you guys have it good. Your songs that we sing today, they're awesome, right? But the songs, Christian songs that we had back then, they're a little bit beneath, you know, par in terms of what it sounded like. And we're singing these songs when we're used to these better pop songs. And I'd just be wondering, why are we doing this? Like, what's the point of this? Is God even real? Like, is, is, does this make any difference in our lives? Because no one wanted to be there none of the youth that were around me wanted to be there until one day I had my own apocalypse till one day where I decided I'm going to spend a year following after Jesus really seeking him and if he doesn't show up then I just want to leave the faith and on that last day of that year commitment Jesus showed up it was an apocalypse. It was a revelation of who God was. It was in my bedroom of all places where God revealed himself. And you know what changed for me? After that revelation, suddenly my mind, my attitude, everything changed. And the, the thing that was on my list was God is real. He really is real. He exists. The very first thing, because of that revelation that I received and this certainty of the reality, power, presence of God, my first desire was I need to tell my friends at church that, that these friends that gather with me, the, the 20 or so uh, youth that were at my youth group at that time, I wanted my closest friends first to know God is real. This is not a joke. We're not just doing this for the sake of doing it. I met Jesus Christ. 
That was the testimony that was my lips. And then from there, it spread to other people. Said, what can I do so that people know that what we do on Sundays, when we gather in these kind of spaces, to let them know that this is real. It matters. God really is here. Brothers and sisters, that was the message. That was the excitement that John had. Even though he journeyed with Jesus Christ as his disciple, he needed a revelation. He needed a fresh revelation for that time. You see, one of Satan's tactics that he has never stopped because it works, and it keeps on working even for weathered Christians, it keeps on working no matter how long you've been following Jesus Christ, is to warp our perception of reality and ourselves. Because Satan knows if he, get, if he can get into our minds, if he can make us think about reality in a certain way, he has the corner of manipulating and directing our lives the way that he chooses. You know, this is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters in Christ, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. What is it then? He says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of our minds. He says, only when we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, then we will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, brothers and sisters, Satan's main tactic for Christians is to warp our perception, to warp our minds, to make us believe in a lesser reality, to make us believe that God's reality does not exist, that all we see with our physical eyes is all that there is, but there is more. There is more. Jesus wants us to enjoy this more. You see, this is why for the church in Pergamum, the main battle that was happening was a battle for their minds. Satan desires to have it, to have our minds, to make us believe in a lesser reality that we're not meant to live and to steal the joy and the life that exudes from, that is sourced in the truer reality of Jesus Christ. See, you don't have to look very far to see how Satan started. He started from the very beginning with Adam and Eve. Right? With Adam and Eve, the very first thing that he does after they're experiencing the presence, the very real presence of God, Satan starts with their mind. He starts with distorting their perception, their understanding of reality. Even though they saw God right there, he asked Adam and Eve, did God really say, does that word of God really matter in your life? When what you see physically right before you is a fruit that is pleasing to the eye. Is God trying to keep you from certain things because he wants to keep certain things from himself? And for each one of us, we have that temptation all the time. Satan knows what our weaknesses are. Satan knows what our desires are. And he plays on it to distort our perception. 
because Satan was able to convince Adam and Eve through the distortion of their minds about what God was, what he was trying to do in their lives, it led them, notice the result, it led them to shamefulness. It also led them to losing out on the life-givingness of that garden, the purposefulness that they found in relationship with God in that garden. And that was Satan's plan all along. I wonder for some of us, how much is Satan taking away from our lives, blinding us to the true reality of what God wants to bring us because he is redirecting our focus somewhere else. As we go into the actual passage together, so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to read from verses 12 through 17. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. I'll be reading from the NIV, and I invite you to read along. It reads this. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Anipus, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will come to you. I will come to you with the sword. Sorry, um, my Bible, <laughs> my Bible is, um, it's, uh, there's a post-it that is on top. Let me just grab a, a different one that, that, yeah, can you do that? Thank you. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for blessing us with your word, giving us your word to hear it, to receive it, to be changed by it. I pray, Father, that you'll renew us. Help us, Father Lord, to be faithful. Help us, Father Lord, to hear what we need to hear and to respond as you're calling us to respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sorry about that. That really threw me off. I was trying to take the post-it off. And I ripped my Bible. And so my heart right now is feeling like, oh my goodness, my Bible. So that kind of threw me off a bit. I apologize for that. Uh, But thank you, Jen, for reading the rest of it for us. So just as we read last week, every time Jesus is addressing the different churches uh, that uh, uh, that he wants to address in Revelation, 
he addresses them by giving a self-introduction in a very particular way. He doesn't introduce himself in the same way to each church as saying, hey, it's me, Jesus Christ, remember me? I'm the sovereign of the universe, right? And I'm this general God that all of you guys should know. No, to each one, he gives a very specific self-introduction. In other words, he gives a revelation of himself, a particular part of who he is that they need to hear. Here we see Jesus introducing himself as the one who has a sword in his mouth. It's a very, very particular self-introduction. Give this revelation to the angel of the church of Pergamum. This is from the one who bears the sword in his mouth. Now, this direct self-introduction is important because it reveals to us what Jesus mentioned early in Revelations, where he just said, I am the sovereign one who stands among the lampstands. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I'm there in your context. I'm not a God who is far off. And being far off, I'm like a generalist. I kind of know what you guys are going through, and I'll kind of give you this overall general plan for each one of you guys to be my disciples. But beyond that, it's up to you. No. He says, I'm standing among you. I know exactly what each and every one of you are experiencing. And I will reveal myself to you in such a way that you need to hear. A part of his revelation that he gives to us is very particular to each one of these churches that they need to hear in their current context. Why is this good news to us? The good news that this is to each one of us is this. When God says, I want to give you a revelation and why we need to seek that in the same way that John sought a revelation of Jesus Christ is because he knows you. He stands with you. He's not far off. He's not a God, even though we feel like we haven't been following him in a while even though we haven't really felt like we've been engaging with him and we don't really deserve to be close to him, God says, I know you. I know what you're going through. And I've never abandoned you. I'm right there. And you don't need to do anything to earn my revelation to you. He just says, if you want it, it's there. And when I give it, the promise that Jesus gives is it'll be specific to you. This is why, brothers and sisters, just going to a general church service, right? Just, just saying, oh, you know, I did my Christian duty for the day, and I, and I listened to a sermon, it's all done, and I move on with my life. That's why those aren't enough for each one of us, because we need a specific revelation that God wants to give to us, and that specific revelation comes when we seek Him. He says, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, God calls us to seek him so that we may receive exactly the revelation that we need to receive from Jesus Christ. Because for the church in Pergamum, they needed to hear this revelation, this, this apocalypse of Jesus Christ because there was a spiritual reality that was taking place, a spiritual battle that was happening for their minds. And he said that I am appearing to you like a sword to let you know I am fighting this battle. I'm with you and I'll cut through 
all of the distortions, all of the deceptions that tries to get into your mind. Brothers and sisters, Jesus says he is the one who has a sharp, double-edged sword. What he's saying to each one of us that we need to hear is that when we pursue him, he too will not just come as a prince of peace. He'll also come ready for war to fight against the spiritual battles that we are particularly experiencing so that it can pierce through that darkness and get to each and every one of us. So let's unpack this imagery a little bit more of why Jesus calls himself the sharp double-edged sword to the church of Pergamum. Well, Pergamum, in, in terms of its context and why he related it to them was this. The, the actual symbol, you guys know that certain cities, they use symbols to represent themselves. The symbol that the city of Pergamum actually used was a sword. That was their symbol of who they were. And the reason why is they took so much pride in the fact that among the Roman cities, they had the right of the sword, which meant there was only a few particular cities that was given the right of the sword. What that meant was this. They were able to carry out capital punishment at their own judgment. All other cities, they didn't have that. But because this city was so loyal to Rome, they decided, hey, they will probably view things in a Roman mindset. So they don't need to bring their cases to us and ask permission to bring punishment to the people. You know, they're saying, we're standing from Rome. And so Rome said, great, because you're so loyal and you have allegiance to us, you have the right of the sword. We trust you to make capital punishment the, any way that you choose. And that was their symbol, to let people know we stand for this. Another thing that we know about Pergamum and why there's this battle for the mind that's going on is Pergamum was also famous for their incredible library that they had. In Jesus' time, the library contained over 200,000 parchment scrolls. That's actually where the word parchment comes from. Parchment scrolls, it derives from the word Pergamum. Not only did they have that in all their scrolls with all of their ideologies and philosophies that were there, it was also built, Pergamum, the city itself, was built on a high rock. And it was also the center of Caesar worship. They were the first city granted to build the first temple to, in honor of Caesar Augustus. This is part of the reason when Jesus addresses the city of Pergamum, he addresses them as the throne of Satan. There's a lot of worship that's going on there. A lot of worship of false gods. They also had two other major temples that were well known in the church of Pergamum. The first one was a temple of healing. And so in this temple, it was the worship of uh, Asclepius. What, who Asclepius was, was he was the god, the Greek god of healing. And this god of healing was also represented by the symbol of a snake. Does that sound familiar, who that sounds like? And so this symbol of the snake in this temple, what they believed, that they filled the temple floors with non-poisonous, non-venomous snakes, right? And what they believed was that if you were sick, you could go into the temple you could pray to the God of Asclepius, and then you would sleep there. 
And as you slept on the floor, if one of these snakes happened to come to you and touch you, they believed that you would be healed. Sounds very Indiana Jones-like, right? I know I'm probably dating myself. Some of you guys don't know. What's Indiana Jones? Forget it. Let's just move on, all right? And so with what we see happening next is they also had this temple of Zeus. And so this temple of Zeus, they called their savior. Zeus is our savior. And this temple of Zeus was actually built on a hillside of their city. And on that hillside that was around 800 feet above the street view was this altar that they erected that overshadowed the city. And so wherever people are walking, they were kind of in the shadow of this altar towards Zeus. See, Jesus knew this city, it did everything possible to conform the people's minds to think in their worldview. Jesus knew that Satan had the minds of the entire city and was influencing their politics, it was influencing their medicine, and it was influencing their thinking. In these major areas of people's lives, Satan had a stronghold in the way people thought about life. This city was known for blinding people to God's truth and their ultimate weapon was the deception of people's minds. You know, when we look at our society today, we notice that from politics, with the way that things are becoming very, very liberal, with the way that things are opening up new kinds of thinking that didn't, that didn't necessarily have popular gains in the past, where people are open to new concepts that they just create because that's what they feel. What we find happening is the same thing that we see in Pergamum, that it's as, as it begins to infiltrate into our minds, believers begin to be uh, influenced by that kind of thinking, saying maybe it is true. Maybe we need to be more tolerant. Maybe we need to have a more open mind. See, Pergamum was a city that was trying to influence them in the way that they view politics, in the way that they viewed health, and in the way that they viewed spirituality. And they were fighting against that. And this is what Jesus commends the church of Pergamum for. He says, I know how hard it is to live in your present day, and I want to commend you for that. But Jesus then goes on to share that he has a major problem with the church. And the major problem wasn't so much about the external pressures that were trying to influence their minds, but actually the internal issues that began to develop that was transforming their mindset. Look what he says. He says, I hold this against you. You are holding to the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. So Balaam is a Hebrew word. Nicolaitans is a Greek word. If you look at actually Balaam, you guys remember Balaam and Balak, right? Or the story of Balaam's donkey, right? You, you guys all remember that, right? Where he was a prophet uh, called by Balak uh, to curse, you know, the, the people of Israel. So Balaam, when you actually uh, parse that word, what Balaam is, is two words. It's Baal and then Am. 
but all means to conquer. It's a Hebrew word meaning to conquer, and Am means the people. So it basically means conquer the people. And then when you look at Nicolaitans, it's the same thing. Nicolaitans, you guys all know Nike, right? This is where uh, the Nikan actually comes from. Nikan means to conquer or to have victory over, right? And that's where the Nike symbol comes from as well, the, the Greek god Nikan of God of victory, right? And so here in the same way, Nikan or Nicolaitan is made up of two words, and it means to conquer the people. So it's the same two concepts in Hebrew and in Greek. You hold to the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Basically, both of these people groups were known to try to conquer the minds of the people. And that's Jesus' accusation to the church of Pergamum. He says, you're holding to their concepts a desire, a value to conquer people's minds. What were, what were they meaning by that? Well, these Nicolaitan or Balaamite practices revolved around two things. Number one was eating food that was sacrificed to idols, and number two, their sexual practices. And so what was happening in that city, just like what we experience in our cities today or in the kind of conflicts that we have to wrestle with in our own day and age, some of their important friends, so these people who are attending church or part of the church of Pergamum, some of their friends were non-followers of Jesus Christ. And they were business associates. They were family members who weren't uh, followers yet. And what would happen is that they would be invited by their family members or invited by their business associates to attend their favorite meal at a temple. Most of the restaurants that they had back then were associated with temple worship. And so what they would do with the food or the meat that was there is they would sacrifice it to certain idols and the, t the table that was set up for them after the food was sacrificed is they, they would eat that meal together in honor of that sacrifice to that God at that temple. See, some of the church followers, they started to have this kind of thinking. They said, hey, we all know that these idols are nothing. They're just built of stone, wood, and they mean nothing. And because they mean nothing, their perception of reality went like this. They said, if it is nothing, then we have nothing to worry about in participating in these things because it is powerless. And that's what Jesus calls the Nicolaitan or Balaamite teachings. He says, You're, you are distorting the reality, the spiritual reality that exists by just conforming everything to a physical reality. See, in Corinthians, Paul points out to the Corinthian church that they are right, that wood is nothing, stone is nothing, there is nothing in that. But what Jesus also points out in this passage is that although the physical elements may mean nothing, there's also a spiritual reality that uses these physical elements to change us, to conform us. And he says, when you sit at the table and you say these meat items mean nothing, he says it's true. But the spiritual reality behind that, as you're sitting there where it was meant as a celebration to a worship to a false God, 
He says, you being in that very presence is a participation in that worship. And in that participation of that worship, there is a spiritual reality that begins to invade your mind and dull you to the Holy Spirit. It dulls you from Jesus Christ. The next thing that we also see is the problem that was addressed about sex. You know, people's argument in the church, the Nicolaitan or the Balaamite kind of thinking, was this. The flesh really counts for nothing, right? That was Greek mythology. They believed that flesh will just disappear, die. The thing that's really important is our soul or our spirit. But what the word that John uses here in the Greek is actually soma. Soma was a word that integrated both the fleshly body and the personality of a person. It said that this soma, this, this body of ours, he's saying is inseparable of the physical body and the person, personhood body. He said there are one thing, even though there are two different aspects of it, it's still one thing. You can't have one without the other. And so the thinking that was the flesh counts for nothing, we're going to die in our spirit or our soul, will just, you know, separate and go to heaven. It doesn't matter what we do with our physical bodies. And so the practice at that time was that it's okay that we have sex with multiple partners. It's okay that we're not faithful within marriage, right? Because it's just our body. It doesn't mean anything. In today's time, we would call that casual sex, right? They say it's just casual. It means nothing to us. It's just to get our animalistic uh, stresses or our desires out, but it doesn't really affect us. But by calling it a soma, our spirituality and our, our personhood and our flesh tied together, there's something greater that's actually going on. There's no such thing as just casual sex because in the sexual act, as our bodies are engaged in that, it's not just the physical bodies that are engaged, but also our spiritual ones as well. Our personhood is engaged in that act as well. And as we do it, and every time we engage in it and we split off, we are bringing harm to that personhood, that spiritual aspect. Because as God says, when man and woman come together, they become one flesh. May man and woman not, may no one separate that one flesh. Meaning this, it does something to our personhood. Some of us gets torn apart from the other person. We can't see it happening spiritually. But that is what's going on. And John says if we simply have a very physical-oriented mindset of reality, then we give no credence to the spiritual dimension, the metaphysical dimension of what's really happening. See, as they, can, they continue to do this, their main argument that they gave was this, even if it happens to be sin, even if I am messing up in this way, the good news that we have is grace, right? So the grace that we have is that we'll always be forgiven. Grace is always there to help us with our, in our messing, uh, us messing up. But John, he wants to make clear that yes, grace is available. Grace is always there for us. But grace isn't there just as a place to give us a do-over. The function of grace 
And the reason why grace is given is so that it transforms. It's not just there as a bomb to just, you know, act as a forgiveness measure. It's there that as it forgives, as it provides this gift, it also transforms us. Grace is never an excuse to continually sin. This is, this is why God says to the people of Pergamon who are struggling with their desire of sex and finding a way to make it conform to their values. Why they were saying it's okay that we eat these celebration meals with our friends and our families. You know, all of these kind of things. This is why Jesus says, I will come to you like a double-edged sword. I will fight that mind battle that you are powerless to actually do something about. But you must be willing. Look at the promise that he gives. He says, for those of us who are willing to be set free from the Nicolaitan Balaamite practices that we all do with our faith, we always try to find compromise. We always try to find an excuse of why it's okay for us to conform to the pattern of this world. He gives these two promises. He says, first to the one who overcomes, Jesus says, I will give some of the hidden manna. Notice he says hidden. I will give some of the hidden manna in verse 17. What he means by that is this. This manna, this, this real bread of life that sustains us, that gives us joy, that fills us. He says it needs to be sought. Right? It's not just spread out where you just casually just take it and put it in your pocket. He says it's sought for those who, re- it's, it's, it's provided for those who really seek it. This is why Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other things will be given to you. In that same way, brothers and sisters, we see later on in Revelation, Jesus says, therefore, here I am. I knock at the door of your hearts, right? And as Jesus begins to knock, it's our choice. Do we want to open up that door and allow him to come in? And where he says, I will come in and eat with you and you with me. In other words, we begin to experience this hidden manna. There are parts in our life where Jesus will come knocking in those areas of our life that we need God's double-edged sword. We need him to pierce through some of the habits, the mind frame that we have that's keeping us locked in, um, in an aspect of our faith that disengages our transformation, that disengages us from experiencing the power of God in our life. He says, when I come knocking and I reveal myself in a specific way and challenge you in this way, rather than giving your Balaamite Nicolaitan excuse, he says, allow my sword to cut that from you. Allow me to cut that away from your life. See, he calls us to forsake the lesser gods, the satisfaction of these lesser things. And it says, take my manna instead. Eat of me instead. The second promise that he gives is he says, to the one who overcomes, Jesus promises, he says, a white stone, which no one knows except those who receives it. Now that's kind of odd, right? Like, let's be honest. I'll give you a stone, right? If you do this, here's a stone and it's white, right? You'll love it. Like none of it, we're like, uh, so what? Why is, why is that so compelling? Well, there's so many different illustrations of why Jesus says, I will give you this stone, right? And I think one of the uh, things that people have found 
that related back to the cultural practices of that day, I think this encapsulates everything. Uh, what, people, what some people would do is they would take a white stone if they knew that they would be separated for a while or if they knew that this relationship was very significant and say, hey, we want this relationship to last. What they would do is they would take a white stone and break it in half. And as they did, each person would write their name on the white stone and they would exchange it. So then I would have someone's, someone's name that I felt like this is gonna be a significant relationship in my life and they would take mine that has my name written on it declaring that this would be take a um, significant relation in my life. This practice was actually called uh, 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 tessera hospitalis, right? Sounds Latin, but tessera hospitalis was this kind of practice. And so what the friends would do is after they would inscribe it, it became a keepsake or a symbol to keep their friendships and all obligations to that friendship until the stone lasted. So in other words, forever. Right? So that was the representation of that stone. So when Jesus says, I will give you my stone with my name written on it, he's saying, I'm giving you all the obligations of this relationship, of this friendship, and I will last. He promises that. But here's the greater promise. When we give him our stone with our names written on it, Jesus does the same thing with it. He takes that. And rather than saying to us, you fulfill your obligation to me since I'm doing it to you, he takes it and he says, I will ensure that who I created you to be, your true name, Eddie that's written on it, Stacy, Kevin, Tony, Wenyu, Jen, James, Steve, Caleb, your name that's written on it, the truest reality of who you are, why I created you, and your purpose. As I hold it, he says, I will help you get there. I'll help you fulfill it. He doesn't just say, you better do your part. He doesn't say, you better... <laughs> try to figure things out on your own and, and work up your part of this. No, he says, I'm going to help you too. You gave me yours, and I'll help you through the power of my name. But brothers and sisters, as we receive Jesus' white stone and we have his name written on it, we are invited at that time to disengage and to cut ourselves from every Nicolaitan Balaamite practice that we have that will influence our minds to trust in lesser gods, in lesser cultural values, in lesser ways of thinking. So how do we surrender ourselves to this battle of our mind? Well, there's three things. Number one, he says, humbly acknowledging that we don't have a corner on the truth. So never come to the place where you're so arrogant to just say, well, I feel that this is right, right? And I feel like my words or my thinking has more value than Jesus. No, let's come with the humble understanding that we don't have the corner on the truth. The second is constantly opening ourselves to the sharp double-edged sword that comes from Jesus's mouth, that we don't resist it. We allow him to cut because we need to be cut of those influences.
And the last one is by humbling ourselves and constantly opening our minds to the living, active Word of God that's able to penetrate all of our distorted ideas and lead us to this truth that sets us free. Brothers and sisters, may we take heed to the word that Jesus gave to Pergamum. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for blessing us with this time. Thank you for helping us to engage in your word. And I ask, Father Lord, may you win the battle of our minds. May you cut us away from every thought and everything that does not please you because we know that it ultimately destroys us. Help us, Father Lord, to have a revelation of you. Help us to answer the door when you knock to let you in. Allow you to dine with us, for us to dine with you and to discover you really are our true bread of life our true sustainer, our true life giver. Thank you, Father. We commit all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.